You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. With politics becoming more and more a part of our daily lives, the theater and acting profession are certainly no strangers to its influence and impact. While it can be a force for change and understanding, my guest today talks about the ways in which it can further divide as well. In the first part of my conversation with Clifton Duncan, he shared deeply personal reflections on the complexities of the theater industry's response to the pandemic and the challenges he faced as an individual in the midst of it all. For part two, our conversation turns to a thought-provoking exploration of groupthink and the influences of social media on theater and the broader society as a whole. He offers valuable insights into the impact of differing viewpoints the blurring of what is considered extreme, and the need for open-mindedness in the arts and beyond. Also, stick around for the latter half of this episode for some bonus conversations with Clifton, offering a powerful conclusion to an episode filled with honesty and a quest for deeper understanding and introspection. There's always a part of it where it's like rah rah sis boo bomb, you know, boosted by your base. But at the same time, I wish I were different and that I could just shut up because my life would be so much easier, Patrick. But but I, I just I can't for whatever reason I can't shut up about this stuff. Welcome to the award-winning podcast Why I'll Never Make It. I'm your host Patrick Oliver Jones, an actor and singer for more than thirty years. Every other week, I talk with fellow creatives who bring us stories from their own life of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can subscribe, donate, and find past episodes. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com. episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda whether it's a breezy zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright chloe blazer for brunch find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Well, for story number two, you wanted to talk about a particular element of the industry that we've touched on already, which has left you feeling increasingly alienated over years, and that is this groupthink and a demand for strict conformity and unspoken prerequisites for career advancement. And for me, I, I think no matter what community we're a part of, this idea of groupthink can seep in. You know, I'm, I'm from the South. There's a certain way that Southerners uh, go through life. I grew up in the church. There's certainly a prescription for how to live a, a good spiritual life. Do you see the theater community as this similar kind of insulated bubble? Um, yes, but to a very extreme degree. Um, you know, once you're in a city like Atlanta, which I think is a very sort of purple city in a way, and, you know, I, I've had all kinds of interesting conversations with professionals, um, you know, and with like Uber drivers or, you know, the clerk at, at, uh, at Walgreens. And um, I just think it's absurd that uh, we're in an industry where, you know, I have people who say to me, so-and-so is, I'll give you actually a perfect example. There's a group of conservative actors um, that you can't really talk about. It's sort of like Fight Club. And, um, you know, it's invite only. And, 
they are they are terrified of of being outed uh, or or even having their names mentioned because they know that it's going to cost them employment opportunities. And for me, you know, uh, I mean, we're we're a bunch of we're a bunch of actors and artists or whatever. We're going to have our opinions and our feelings about stuff, and we're going to want to express ourselves, um, which is our right uh, in a free and liberal society. But my beef is that it's absurd to me that we can call ourselves so-called progressives, and yet we also have an industry where people are living in ab- in abject fear of expressing any sort of uh, political opinions that might differ from the cultural zeitgeist of the of the moment, and so. You know, I have a colleague named Lincoln Jones who used to run the um, the American Ballet Theater in L.A. who was ousted at, at, uh, eventually because he didn't want to um, put the um, the black square uh, on his social media or something when all the George Floyd unrest was um, erupting. Um, people have called me in tears because white women who are being called Nazis by their friends because, uh, you know, again, they don't hop right on the Black Lives Matter train. You know, the fact of the matter is, folks, that there are a lot of people with a, a great diversity of opinions, but that should have no impact on whether or not they can, you know, match harmonies with you or know how to break down a script and can live moment to moment with you and, and creating great compelling moments for an audience on stage. So I guess my dream is that, I mean, I would love for there to be an industry where someone could say, you know, I support BLM because of this. And someone else could say, well, I don't support BLM because of that. And it and the latter not having any impact on on their career and um, people just being really adult about it and and grownups and saying, oh, wait, well, I guess we'll have to agree to disagree. But we have a bigger you know, there's something bigger than us at play, which is this show we have to do. And um, the theater community in particular, but, you know, I think this applies to the industry as a whole. They can't, they can never say that they are, uh, that they are inclusive um, and that they're tolerant or open-minded until they start understanding that not everyone's a socialist, not everyone uh, uh, thinks progressivism is great, not everyone is a Marxist. And, um, and you need people, you need that diversity of opinions and viewpoints you know, in rehearsal rooms at studios, because what's going to continue to happen is uh, what I alluded to before, which is that the asylum will continue to be run by one kind of people. And that kind of people will continue to drift away from the everyday concerns of the general public. And if you want the general public to be a part of your audience base, um, especially as, you know, more traditional theater goers are kind of dying off, you need to be more open and, uh, and you need to understand, I mean, you know, have any of these theaters conducted any surveys? You know, has the Broadway League conducted any surveys? You know, have they asked the people who uh, wake up at the crack of dawn to, to pick up their garbage? What we know, what kind of things they might want to see, or what kind of issues are pressing to them? Have they asked their, you know, their their housekeepers or their nannies um, what kinds of issues are most important to them and what they would like to see? And I think that's at the end of the day um, where our responsibility lies is to be more open and understanding that, look, if people disagree with you, it doesn't mean that they're Nazis. Um, it just means that they have different views on the economy and and, and legislation and, um, you know, the best way to tackle crime and the best way to tackle, um, you know, immigration reform, you know, the best way to deal with the healthcare system and that these kinds of things. People have very, very good reasons for being on either side of either argument. And you need to understand that. And um, I think once we are able to do that, um, you know, then we can get back to our industry and, and fine art, drama, the theater being more part of popular society and popular culture, because we'll, we'll be reflecting um, what people are actually dealing with, as opposed to making everything about trans rights and feminism. I mean, to be blunt. Well, you mentioned having opinions on one side or the other, but I would counter that in saying there's not just one side or the other. There's many sides. There's there's nuances mm-hmm. within each of those sides. So there's not just Correct. one way of thinking this way or you're the other. There's so much in between, and there's other ideas that aren't even encapsulated in those two ideas. And I remember for myself, I'd never really thought about this type of culture and the, the political aspect of being an actor until I was um, – my very first show when I when I moved to New York was doing producers out in Long Island at Gateway Playhouse. And one of the actors in that, it was, you know, maybe a year or so later, we happened to bump into each other. And he said, oh, oh, hey, you're the, hey, Republican. I was like, what? Oh, oh hi. <laughs> I, I said his name and, and then we kept on. But I was like, at one point, I grew up in the South and the South was heavily Republican as I grew up. I've since moved beyond that and I'm, I'm in that nuanced camp of I, I'm not either side. I'm kind of in that gray area where I, I'm much more centrist now. But 
a very lonely place to be. Yes, yes, especially <laughs> nowadays. Yeah, yeah, compromise is not something that people like to hear. But having said that, it just struck me that that's how he remembered. Like, you know, all these months or a year later, that that's how he saw me. And I don't tend to see people in that way. And it's mm-hmm. uh, the theater shouldn't be putting people in boxes, you know, that, whether it's characters that we play or the audiences that come and see us. No, well, that, that's the thing, you know, it's um, for people who are obsessed right now with non-binaries, um, they, they certainly have a very binary way of looking at sociocultural attitudes and politics. And um, a, a big frustration for me, you know, uh, Zelda Fitchhandler, again, I reference her again, you know, she once said that the two cornerstones, two of the cornerstones of the craft of acting um, are empathy and curiosity. And uh, in terms of politics, I see very little, very few people exercising empathy. I mean, I look at the issue of abortion, for instance, which I sort of view as a litmus test for both sides. You know, you, you don't have to accept the premise, for instance, that abortion is child murder, which is what a lot of pro-life people think. Um, I, I understand where they're coming from. I understand why they think that. Yet I'm still pretty staunchly pro-choice. Um, you know, my, comes, my opinions come from a more, you know, freedom-minded bodily autonomy perspective. Um, but the thing is, that there have been some conservatives I've seen who, you know, that you can't communicate with who are just like, you support murder, you know, or the fact that I'm an atheist, for instance. Um, the Christians in my life have never written me off and said, you know, oh, well, we're not going to hang out with you and you're, you're a wrong thinker and a sinner and an infidel and you deserve not to, you know, work or have any jobs or whatever. I don't have to share your belief system. Um, I, all I care about is, are you cool? Are you interesting? You know what I mean? And, and uh, people kind of want to be left alone. I guess the point that I'm getting at is that right now, I think that the entertainment industry and the theater in particular is very, very much, has very much become a victim of being just in its own echo chamber. And, um, and it's funny because even the idea of what a Republican is, I mean, I think Stephen Sondheim once said that, uh, you know, he's glad that he works in an industry that doesn't have any Republicans in it. And I'm thinking, you know, on one hand, I'm like, well, if they're the party of, of rich people, then don't you want their money? Uh, but also, you know, that's that there's no, why be that exclusive? Why, why be that exclusionary? Um, and, and that's bigotry by definition. You know, it's, it's, there's no, for my mind, like you were saying, Patrick, there's no place for that in, in the theater where we're all working together. It's about community and, and exploring all kinds of aspects of humanity. And here's the thing as well, Patrick, you know, is that I didn't even know that there was another way to think up until around 2014. And ever since then, an entirely different world has opened up to me, an entirely different way of, uh, way of thinking. And this, and just within the past few years, um, you know, just the collective IQ of my network has uh, has expanded. I've got friends, you know, b- who range from scientists and and epidemiologists to writers and journalists. Um, they're they're conservative, they're libertarian, they're progressive, they're socialists. Um, but you know, and so there's many areas where we don't see agreement, but. At the same time, I still respect these people's intellect. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I follow the, the Jacobin magazine um, on Twitter, for God's sakes. I mean, they're definitely not a, a far right institution. Um, it's a socialist publication, but I'm still interested in what they have to say. I mean, one of my favorite things to do is to go to the, uh, the homepage on a Real Clear Politics, which is a, a, a news aggregator and uh, great for polling data as well. And every morning uh, at the top of their homepage, they have op-eds from across the country and from uh, across the political spectrum. So you can see, you know, the sort of, you know, what the tastemakers, the opinion makers are talking about, you know, where the sort of societal conversation is going. That is very interesting to me, you know, and I go back and read books by, you know, Uta Hagen or Sela Adler. And, you know, they're talking about how, you know, actors, they need to be educated. They need to be cultured, you know, uh, well-read and studied in history and, and literature and all these other things, because we are serving as conduits and vessels and mirrors of various societies. So we need to be um, educated and we need to be open-minded, but so many artists are not. And it's purely because they are so dedicated to this idea of themselves as progressives when, um, you know, there's just way, way, way Life is so much more exciting and more interesting, and I think the art becomes better and more textured and nuanced if we allow more uh, perspectives. It's not that people are walking around spreading uh, Jewish conspiracies. It's just people are saying, well, you know, I have different ideas about taxes and business regulations, and, you know, I'm, I'm an immigrant, but I support immigration restrictionism, for instance, or, you know, I'm a minority, and I am not a fan of diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, or I'm a woman, and I have issues with the way that some feminists conduct themselves. Um, 
you know, or or I may I'm a queer person and I don't like the way that uh, that trans activists are portraying my club, so to speak. These kinds of conversations are what people are talking about in society right now. You know, I think we the more that we can open ourselves to the idea that people who disagree with us aren't fascists and Nazis, but uh, actually might have very well thought out reasons for disagreeing with us, then we we we'd be doing better as a business, as a business for one. But also, I think again, I say it again that we we're really we need to be all hands on deck right now because the divisions and resentments and everything is so is so strong right now that uh, I think that artists really need to take leadership in a way and um, try to reach out and try to build connections. You know, but that's you know maybe on my soapbox, I suppose, in my utopian vision. Well, if one looks back in in the recent history of theater in the U.S., like like the '60s and '70s and beyond. Theater has shown itself to be a, a place for the weird, the queer, the unheard voices in society. It's, it's, it's been a very progressive, inclusive environment. And it's, it's well, I often, would say, I, I would say progressive and inclusive for a certain strand of people. Uh, well, people well, well I'm, I'm just talking about the, the, the broader history of it, about at least at how it's been seen. Right. And, you know, and it's often been at the forefront of pointing out the ills of society, pushing for a better world and all these things. Do you think that theater is still a place for that? Well, ideally, I mean, that's one of the reasons that, that I spent so long in it. I was like, oh, these people are just as weird as I am. They're weirder than I am. Um, and yet now I feel I feel alienated from the weirdos. But I'm also in a place where, you know, one of the one of the issues, and I've said this to right wingers, um, you know, some prominent right wingers, is that, um, you know, the more conservative minded people, more right leaning people, they tend to just be so coldly pragmatic that, you uh, you know, that's one of the reasons they kind of self-select themselves out of out of the arts, you know, because it's hard to sustain a career. You know, they're very much about, um, you know, uh, conscientiousness and industriousness and holding down a job and structure and, and discipline and delayed gratification and all these things, which are boring to so many people in the arts. Right. Um, you know, oh, God, get all this all this structure, and all these rules and boundaries away from me. Like, you know, we don't really we don't really like that. Um, so you're talking about people cut from a different cloth altogether in a way. But my, I think my thing is that, uh, yes, um, arts can have very much a social utility and they can be very, it has been a welcome community for like outcasts. That's why I tell people like, look, look, don't be nice to all those weirdos in your musical theater, you know, in your, in your theater program, because those are going to be the next movie stars and directors and the producers and yada, yada, yada. So all those weirdos are going to be controlling the stuff that your kids watch. So maybe you should, uh, <laughs> you know, be a little bit kinder and more inclusive in, in that way. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's, it, you know, for, for people who are off the beaten path, I mean, that's why I found a home in it. A absolutely. Uh, and, and again, I don't think that uh, it's it's necessarily a question of either or in any society. You know, I've, I've moved away from this idea of, um, you know, red and blue, left and right, Dem and Republican. I'm leaning more towards the language of idealists versus realists. You're going to find more idealists on the left and more realists on the right. And, you know, me as the idealist, I say, man, I want, I would love to start a repertory company that, that we can share and stream our, our work with the rest of the world. And, you know, we don't need stars anymore because of, you know, the online space and people are building their own followings now. And, you know, there has to be a way we can make money, yada, yada, yada. And um, the realist will say, that sounds nice, kid. How do we pay for it? And I think one side is going to check the other side and, and they're going to create there's going to be tension there because, again, you're talking about people with different sort of constitutions trying to navigate their way through life. But, look, I'm happy to start a company, for instance, where, you know, I am in, in charge of creative and acting and performing, and I have some right-wing free market hawk to run the damn thing and keep the kids in line. So while I can play and the other person can keep the lights on and everything. And this kind of collaboration, I think, is um, really being missed out on by a lot of people. And the last thing that I'll say... Um, it was an anecdote, which is where I was doing um, the piano lesson in uh, Hartford. And we had a talk back afterward. And uh, it was funny because the moderator was trying to make it about black women and August Wilson. I'm like, well, I don't know if you've read his plays, but it's not really he's not really writing about you. I'm sorry, ma'am. But, uh, you know, I was talking about the character of Boy Willie, who I was playing. And um, I saw over to the um, kind of off to the side, there was this, uh, this white couple looked very sort of blue collar. I felt I got the sense that this poor guy was dragged to this show <laughs> with all these black people in it and, um, you know, by his girlfriend to show how cultured he is, you know. But 
as I was talking about the character of Boy Willie and his drive and his passion and his his um, ambition to build a life for himself, this guy just, just just goes, yeah, he sees something that he wants and he goes for it. And I said to myself, that's it. This play about these black people, this black man in the 1920s, this black character's journey resonated and inspired this random blue collar white dude. And that's the thing that people need to remember is that, you know, excellence and art and all that stuff, it, it transcends all this partisan nonsense. It transcends all this ideological bullshit. Um, we really do have an opportunity here. And I've learned myself, right? I put out, you know, Shakespeare sonnets. I put out recently a, a video of myself singing some Rodgers and Hammerstein. And the response has been overwhelmingly positive. And my favorite comments are from people who are like, yeah, you know, I have no interest in musical theater or musicals at all, but I will support this kind of work. I want to see more work like this because this is excellent. And that's the point that I need to get across is that, um, you know, the people that you're dismissing as Nazis and fascists and, you know, um, over their political differences, um, they're they're waiting, they're dying for you to be brought into the fold of, of the weirdos, at least you know for a glimpse at a time, and given some sort of transcendent, memorable experience they can talk about, um, you know, for the rest of their lives, maybe, or at least for the evening. So you know, people want to see what we do. It's just a matter of the people, the the practitioners and the arts and the professionals understanding that um, you know there's a, there's a big old audience out there and they want to be in theaters. So stop alienating them and pushing them away. episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda whether it's a breezy zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright chloe blazer for brunch find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com for story number three through social media, you have amassed more than 125,000 people following you over various platforms. And getting back to this idea of the arts bringing in more people, in what ways have you been able to use your following you know, to introduce the arts and entertainment to those who might normally not have been interested in it? Well, like I said before, you know, I, you know, again, like there was one woman who commented on my my song video about uh, she said, uh, you know, I love Broadway, but I can never make it out to see shows. So I would love to see more uh, stuff like that. I mean, this is Rodgers and Hammerstein, by the way. So not any sort of pop music or, you know, flavor of the moment. Um, people who say this was never really my, my cup of tea. Um, people who said, yeah, I found you for your political commentary. But now that I know you can do all this, I want to see more of it. So you know, I, I truly think I've been very heartened by this discovery that it's not just a bunch of uh, progressives in blue metros like L.A. and San Francisco and New York that have a sensitivity for the arts or whatever. It's that there is an entire sort of world out there. And for anyone who wants to look at me and say, well, you um, destroyed your career and you canceled yourself, I would say, well, look, you are basically performing for a very small cluster of people in New York and LA most of the time. If you happen to reach a point where you're on a popular show, then sure, you have that machine that's pushing you into the eyes of the public. But now, you know, we're in a position where, you know, and again, simply by speaking my mind, I, I sort of, you know, lucked my way into this kind of a thing. But I think now artists need to understand that, um, there is such a, a, a sort of untapped well of followers, of audience out there that you can connect with directly. And I think that that gives me a sort of power and, and, and flex in a way that I would not have had if I decided to kind of stay with the traditional course and to be quiet. And it's really been heartening because, you know, for instance, um, for a long time, one of my most popular podcasts was with a conservative scholar and a Greek classicist named Victor Davis Hanson. And um, we talked for a half hour about the importance of Greek tragedy. And, you know, so many of the comments were about how they usually see Victor doing, um, you know, and he's, you know, a uh, center-right pundit and, and scholar and writer. And he's often talking about uh, politics. But to see him talk about art, people were like, oh, this is fascinating. I want to read more now. Like, you know, and I have people who say, you know, whenever I see Clifton reference a book, I want to go or a play, I want to go read it and check it out. 
And I say all the time, you don't need a college education or an Ivy League degree or even a high IQ to know whether or not something moves you emotionally. And I think the more that people remember that, um, the, the better place that, that we'll be in because, you know, you don't, you don't need to confine yourselves to only having to appeal to what I call quote unquote progressive zeitgeist, which really is a, a, a vanishingly small sect of society. Um, I think people are more complex than that. People are, um, they're more open-minded than that, than, than they're given credit for. And I think they're more sophisticated, um, believe it or not, than, than they're often given credit for. And, um, even though things have been very difficult for me, it's not lost on me that, um, you know, as my following continues to grow, it opens up the door for other opportunities that would not have existed if I'd stayed in the sort of traditional machine. And if producers are smart, you know, if I get to the point where I'm like at 1 million, 2 million followers or whatever, then guess what? I have the chops to, you know, do a Broadway play or a Shakespeare play or something. I can, I can carry that on my shoulders and bring an entirely new audience to the theater and introduce an entirely new audience to the arts. And I think that at the end of the day, if I can serve as an ambassador in some way for the arts and for artists, um, that would be fantastic. The thing is the artists have to chill out and simmer down and really truly live by these sort of inclusive principles that they claim to stand for. You mentioned about amassing followers and certainly in TV and film, but also coming into theater as well. Social media followers is now playing a role in whether some people get cast or not. And what do you think of social media's influence on the casting process? Um, I think it is um, corrosive, really, because on one hand, it drives so much of the cultural conversation. But, you know, when you talk about a platform like Twitter, for instance, well, less than a quarter of Americans even use Twitter. And of that percentage, maybe 10% of active users are, are responsible for like 90% of the tweets or something like that. So you're talking about a very, very small sect of people who are controlling this conversation. You know, I know there are actors who jeopardize themselves by liking random tweets. You know what I mean? Like if they if they like a tweet by Candace Owens or by Ben Shapiro or something, then that could cause problems for them. I think that's nonsense. Again, like you will never see me um, supporting a, a communist regime, for instance. But if if I happen to be working with someone and I work with socialists and communists um, who are good at their jobs, I really don't care. I don't care what anyone thinks on social media or what they, they say. You know, it's just... That's just one component of our lives. And if you're a theater or if you're a producer or something, and you're thinking of hiring somebody and you don't like that they sent out a certain tweet or something, or you disagree with something that they said, I mean, I, for me, that's just people being grownups and having different perspectives on their life. You know, if I'm thinking of it from a practical, you know, maybe even a business perspective, what's going to be better for this show? What's going to help generate more, uh, more revenue, more money? You know, the fact that I have this amazing, amazing set of performers and designers, um, or am I going to just, you know, make sure I only pick people that everyone else in my industry thinks is safe? You know, it just doesn't really, once, once the hiring decisions become influenced by who is liking people's tweets versus, um, you know, or sharing opinions on, uh, like opinions on social media versus, you know, their ability, then, um, Again, it's another way of sort of enforcing this sort of rigid ideology on people, these ideological straitjackets uh, on people. Um, now, that said, you know, it's one thing, again, if you're talking about people who are, you know, spreading like Jewish conspiracies and stuff like that. And you're like, well, I don't know if I want to <laughs> I don't know if I want to deal, you know, maybe give them a copy of like Hannah Arendt or something and, and have them read through that or something. But, you know, I mean, that, that's a different sort of a thing. But I think what we're also dealing with now is that uh, we have a paradigm wherein anyone who voices any sort of disagreement with, um, and again, I mean, and I separate this term from liberal um, ideology, but sort of a left-wing leftist sort of worldview. When you begin to cast those people as Nazis and fascists and, you know, who, who have dangerous opinions or whatever, um, it creates a real problem because then you know, prospective hirers and other, and your colleagues are going to say, oh, that person liked a tweet from, you know, again, I'll just say like Ben Shapiro or Jordan Peterson or something. Well, you know, and then they spout a bunch of opinions that uh, really are informed by what the press has written about them as opposed to like, you know, an actual examination of the ideas and character of the person. Again, I just, I think it makes, it just sanitizes everything for everyone's protection. And it just makes, um, it makes people just more boring and, and it's really confining and, and stifling. And again, like I said before, only a small proportion of people are even on the damn thing anyway. So, <laughs> you know, what do you really care? The ticket buying public is not going to really give that much of a shit. You know what I mean? 
we're making ourselves slaves to you know these platforms that uh, people aren't really really on that much to be honest with you i'm curious how much finding this other following these contrarians who, who tend to kind of buck the status quo as, as you put it that having found that following that it makes you want to say more or speak out more um not really you know i've never been i mean i'm kind of a weirdo right because i've never been somebody who I mean, I feel like the implication of, of that is, a, you know, they call it kind of clout chasing. You're sort of playing to a base and you're, you're inflaming an audience and growing a following that way. Um, I've never been a fame whore. And uh, I've never been someone, I mean, even at times where I've tried to say, gosh, why am I still doing this? Well, maybe I want to be famous. And that's, you know, I just, it, it never really works for me. I, I prefer to be the guy who, you know, after the Broadway show or something, I'll come out of stage door sign some playbills, and then I can just ride home anonymously on the subway and not be bothered, you know? There's always a part of it where it's like, you know, rah-rah, sis-boo-bomb, you know, sort of boosted by your base. But at the same time, um, I wish I were different and that I could just shut up because my life would be so much easier, Patrick. But but I, I just, I can't, for whatever reason, I can't shut up about this stuff. And I really, you know, I, I try to mean what I say. And I, I, in terms of like just being really specific and, and, clear in my thoughts. And um, I think part of what's going on right now is that the things that I'm saying and what's resonating right now is that a lot of people agree with me, but they might be afraid to to speak up about it. And that's why people like me are kind of catching on because they have what's... And I try to explain it to people in this way. So right now we're in a space where think about how many people become um, university professors, how many people become you know famous rock stars, athletes, celebrities, journalists, you know writers, whatever. So you have a small cluster of people, relatively, who have a very, very, very disproportionately large reach, and they are controlling sort of public opinion. But what I'm finding increasingly is that public opinion is not really in line with what this small sector of people with a large reach is, is really thinking right now. So my theory is that people who are calling me, you know, courageous or brave for speaking out, I'm like, no, I don't, I don't think I'm being really brave. I think I'm just saying stuff that a lot of people really think, but they're afraid <laughs> to really uh, say anything about it because they don't want to be called, you know, racist or fascist or, or whatever by disingenuous people. So um, I'm, not, I'm not really a fan. And, and people will notice lately I've been sort of really more sporadic on social media because as we were saying before we got on, Patrick, you know, I just am... I'm kind of really tired of the of all the culture war stuff and the and the back and war stuff and the partisan stuff and it's sort of it's fun to indulge in every once in a while but I don't know if it's really helpful. You know, and that kind of is what that plays into because as much as there's like a, there's like a star system in play um in our industry there's also one in these sort of alternative spaces where you know who's getting on the big podcasts and who's got the bigger followings and you know who's making more money on Patreon and who's getting the book deals and light and yada 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 and it's just, a, you know, as I say, the same shit, new toilet. So I want to shift more into just doing what I do. I mean, I'm still deeply interested in politics and current events. But like I said, referenced before, you know, just putting more work out there, I think needs to be the primary focus, especially as an artist. And that's where I'd rather more, you know, I'd rather grow my following in that way than through all the sort of divisive political stuff. You know what I mean? Right, right. You'd, you'd rather get back to artist rather than activist. Well, what I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's that's exactly it, you know. But I, I don't think of myself as an activist, but I guess I have become one in some in certain uh, aspects. And you alluded to this earlier, but in a, a recent tweet from early January, you said, and I quote, the next time some artist claims that they're standing up against the status quo, remind them that the status quo deemed them non-essential and they zealously complied. You, you definitely seem to have, and I think it's come through in our conversation, a, a certain frustration with fellow actors and artists. What kind of reaction have you found calling them out and having, or at least trying to have these conversations? Well, no one talks to me. <laughs> so, you know, there's that. I mean, you know, I do have people that reach out to me um, privately who agree with what I'm saying, but they, they wouldn't dare say so publicly. At this point, though, to be honest with you, I really don't expect to change any minds at all. I think my biggest frustration is that, um, you know, again, we've allowed people who don't care about the arts to dictate that we're not essential. And uh, for me, and this is what I've been arguing, I feel like I've been a, a bigger sort of advocate for the arts in a way than a lot of artists themselves have been over the past couple of years, because I've been saying like loud and clear, like, guys, you know, we are essential, we're important, and we should be doing shows. And, and you know, we, we do serve a function in society. And um, 
if you could look beyond the political aspect, if you could look beyond your myopic focus on this one respiratory virus, I think you'd be able to see that. And also you'd be able to see that, um, you know, they, they want to be in, in our world and they want to be a part of our sphere. And, you know, like, as I was saying before, I mean, people are spending money on uh, mixed martial arts shows and on YouTubers, but they're not spending it on Broadway. I think part of that is because of the people who run the industry, to be frank, and they've they've sort of painted themselves into a corner. And it's not just Broadway, it's uh, various arts institutions. Um, I think they've just, they've gone too far in alienating people and um, people are responding accordingly. And if you, if you think that you're not essential, then who else is going to think that you're essential? People's standards of living are, are going down and the costs of living are increasing. And they're not going to have as much money to come and see shows. And I think you're going to rue the day that you allowed um, control of your of your industry, your livelihood, to be wrested from you by these bureaucrats. And really, and I'm going to say it, um, really for not much gain. You know, it's just it's it's sad to watch, and that's my frustration. Is that um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I felt like I, like I said before, acting kind of chose me. I never really chose it. The bug never really bit me. And yet here I am being someone, one of the few voices in the wilderness who have said, no, the arts are important. And they shouldn't be closed. And everyone else has kind of said, oh, I mean, to hear actors who were kind of resigned to, you know, oh, I guess this show is going to close or these theaters are going to close and yada, yada, yada. And I'm thinking to myself, like, where is our passion and why are we so passive about this? And why aren't we fighting? Um, the way that these, uh, you know, these entrepreneurs are fighting to keep to keep our business alive and 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 to keep it afloat and to keep people, um, you know, managing their own risks, you know, you know, or whatever, you know, but, but coming out because again, you got to understand, while shows were closed in New York, I was working at a nightclub. Okay, the bars and the nightclubs were open in, in Atlanta. They were packed. Um, you can you can get a lap dance at Magic City, but you couldn't go see a Broadway show. And um, We've allowed ourselves to become non-essential, uh, essentially, and this is a really long way of saying it. And uh, that's been my frustration: is that why didn't we fight harder to preserve, um, to stand up for ourselves? I think that's that's the main point of it. Now, this may be the second half of my interview with Clifton, but subscribers to Why I'll Never Make It already got the full conversation in their feeds a couple of weeks ago. They also got to hear Clifton's audition story and his thoughts on the final five questions. Well, as my gift to you on this last episode of Season 7, you're actually going to hear those bonus segments with the hope that you too will consider supporting this podcast and help me produce future episodes. All you have to do is go to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe or just look for the link in the show notes. Another benefit besides access to full episodes and bonus content is not having to listen to any ads either. So um, I had just gotten back from, I think I was doing the Scottsboro Boys in uh, San Francisco. And uh, I... (laughs) You know, I was like kind of jet lagged. I've been in California for like months and months and months. And I was uh, called in for the role of Asagai and um, in A Raisin in the Sun. And and Felicia Rashad was directing this production. And so, you know, I kind of, I could play Asagai in my sleep basically. And it's a role I really enjoy. And, you know, so I, I prepped as much as I could. And I ended up getting a call back. Uh, I went in the morning and, uh, you know, and the first audition was hilarious because, uh, uh, you know, I went in and two of the readers are people that I knew, but I didn't like very much. And then, and then the, um, the, the room itself was sort of cold and, and, and drab because, you know, Miss Rashad, I don't know what, what was going on with her, but, uh, you know, there was a, a palpable tension in the room, but then <laughs> at the other end of the, t- you know, sitting in the corner is Tara Rubin, the casting director with just this big smile on her face, completely in contrast to the rest of the room. And uh, I love Tara so much, but she was like, Hey, you know, and so already it was kind of weird. And, uh, you know, I, I, I remember like trying to make kind of some kind of small talk and it just really was awkward. And I was like, whatever, I guess I, I, I literally said, well, all right, here I go. And, <laughs> you know, cause it was just so weird. And by the time I got to to the end of it, um, she she stopped me before I finished the second scene, and she goes, 
thank you. Thank you. And I was like, oh, you're welcome, I guess. You know, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know what to say to that. And uh, so before I left the building, I found that I got, in, like, I call, got called back that afternoon. So I went back in the afternoon, had a little bit more prep time. So I was a little bit more solid on what I was doing. And, you know, went through the first scene and there was nothing there. Like there was no acknowledgement that the scene was over. I was like, I guess I'll just turn the page now, you know. And then I got to the second part, the second side. And again, before I finished, she cut me off and she goes, she goes, perfection, perfection, perfection. And uh, right then I knew I didn't get the part because, <laughs> and you know, all my friends were saying like, oh, guess you better pack your bags going to Connecticut. You just got here from California. Now, you, now you're going out of town again. And I was like, guys, I don't, I don't think so. I, I just, I got a feeling about this one. And sure enough, uh, another actor got it. And I said, somehow, some way, someone found a way to improve upon perfection. <laughs> they were more <laughs> to, to win this part. Yes. Somehow they were more perfect. And I just said, you know, this industry is so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> what the, well, yeah, it's so subjective. You just, yeah, you never know what they want. And a lot of times they don't know what they want until they finally see it. So, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> well, let's get into these final five questions here. Number one, what was your very first professional experience on stage? Um, well, that, that depends on what you mean by professional. Um, I did. You, you were paid to be there. <laughs> okay. So I did an, an internship. Um, again, it's funny how things come full circle, but I did an internship in 2003, I think the summertime, um, at the now defunct Georgia Shakespeare festival right here in Atlanta, Georgia. And, um, and it was funny because it was the first time that I'd really been, you know, working with professional actors and, um, and I, I hate to say it, but I learned more that like not like three months of just being around these actors than I did in like you know three years of my undergrad, my, my prior undergraduate study. Um, but that was really cool, just being around those actors and seeing how they put together um, scenes and and built their parts. And to see you know one actor um, named Chris Kayser, who's uh, very prominent in Atlanta, who you know one night he's playing uh, Benedict and Much Ado and has the audience eating out of his hand, and then the next night he's in like School for Wives, I think. Um, Moliere, and then he's playing Belarius in Cymbeline. And uh, to see the virtuosity of these actors, you know, and I was only 19 years old at the time, that was a really, really, um, that was a huge impact on me. So it was pretty awesome to be there at that time. Number two, how has the industry changed most since when you first started that first professional? <laughs> and well, for, for this answer, we've talked about COVID enough. So apart from COVID, and because that kind of changed everybody, how would you say just the industry itself as a profession has changed? You know what? And people are going to get mad at me, but I honestly think that it's more racist now than it was, or at least, it's, at least it's more race conscious now than it was when I started out. And um, my, my fear is that, um, you know, we've, we've left the era where you could be a CCH Pounder or a Viola Davis or an Alfrey Woodard or Angela Bassett or Denzel Washington, Lawrence Fishburne, all these people, James Earl Jones, who stood out because they were extraordinary. And now we're in a position where people are being handed parts um, because they happen to fit the right demographic. And my fear is that audiences are sensing that. And so now when they see someone on screen who looks like me, or, or they're a woman or a sexual minority, that they're reflexively going to reject it. I mean, it broke my heart to see bros, for instance, do so badly because, you know, for me, again, I'm open-minded and progressive. I'm like, oh, a romantic comedy about gays. I like that. That sounds interesting to me. And then when it does poorly, um, I can't imagine how it feels to be one of the artists involved in that. It must be crushing. Um, but I also wonder if part of the backlash toward that movie was just that people are saying, you know, and I, God, I hate this so much just to, to put it this way, um, you know, because it, it brings up um, the sort of conservative bigotry in a way, but it's like, you know, just stop putting it in front of my face. You know, there's some kind of agenda behind it. And uh, I think people are becoming really cynical about it and pushing back in ways that really aren't healthy. And that's why, you know, I feel like, you know, there has to be some way to kind of reach across the aisle and, and um, be more open. But uh, it's, it sucks, but I feel like the industry has become more divisive and um, really more disconnected from the sort of general public than, than it was when I first started, unfortunately. And number three, what does success or making it mean to you? You know, I've struggled with that a lot, but um, for me, you know, my, my brother came to see me in uh, the, uh, the play that goes wrong. And, um, you know, and I had other people who were talking about, oh, man, you made it, bro. Like, you know, you're this and you're that. And for me, I had to kind of stop them because I said, you know, it's enough for me that I am working steadily and that I'm, I'm able to make my living being an actor. 
you know, there were nights where I was doing a play that goes wrong where, I mean, I'd be in tears, Patrick, um, because I was so grateful that, you know, I mean, I learned so much about comedy in that show. And for anyone who's ever seen it, um, just being in it, you know, I, I'd never heard in my life, I've never been to a show or experienced a show where just for two hours straight, you have an audience just dying, gasping uh, for air, just splitting themselves open with laughter beside themselves. And you know, I'm in bed at night crying because like I get to do it again tomorrow and I get to learn something new tomorrow and I get to try, you know, tweak this moment or try to, you know, hunt for a new laugh here. And I, I get to bring all kinds of joy to people. So, you know, in that sense, I was very successful. There was a time where when we were doing Carmen Jones off Broadway and I, at the same time, I was also rehearsing the, um, the pre-Broadway developmental lab for Secret Garden, and uh, which well, I'm not doing it that now. Um, and uh, you know, I, I, it, it was such a thrill to work with Warren Carlyle and Sierra Bogus, and uh, you know, really feel like I was a part of the process. But I was so stressed out, you know, I couldn't really enjoy the experience of working on Carmen Jones with John Doyle and Anika Noni Rose. So in a way, I felt more successful, so to speak. Um, in that lab doing Secret Garden because I was so fulfilled by what we were doing versus this critical and commercial hit off Broadway with all these stars in it. You know, I, I, I mean, there were technical aspects too. Like if you look at some early reviews, you know, before I'd, I'd learned really how to sing the role. I mean, I had like three weeks to prepare that, you know, John offered it to me and I was like, oh, this is an operatic tenor role. I'm like a baritoner and a baritone. Like what the fuck am I going to do with this? So that was, it was hard for me to feel as though that was a success, even though from the out, from the outside, right? Rave reviews, extensions, um, you know, Broadway buzz, all that stuff, you know, but I felt more fulfilled working on Secret Garden. So that was a success. So maybe, you know, I've always said that um, I don't need to be famous, but I do want to be rich. So maybe that's sort of my, <laughs> my you know, the fame is like a byproduct, I guess. But, uh, you know, if I could just make a lot of money just doing shows, then that would be successful for me. But um, and I guess that's the long and the short of it. Well, number four, describe a personal lesson that has taken you a while to learn or one that you are still working on to this day. Oh, gosh. Um, you really have to learn to be assertive. Maybe A&A, assertive and authentic. Don't treat others disrespectfully, but also, especially for actors, learn how to be more assertive in the room. You're not just some meat puppet to be pushed around on stage by some you know crazy director. You're not just some cog in a machine to be plugged in by some stupid network executive who doesn't know anything about art or some shareholder who doesn't know anything. You have a reason to be there. You have your own personal power. You have a perspective that's valuable. And you're the one doing the damn scene. So if something doesn't make sense, you you better say something. And also authenticity. You know, be, you know, you, one of the paradoxes of what we do is that self-knowledge um, makes for better work in terms of um, playing other people. And it sort of ties back into this idea of people of, of the sort of ideological conformity, right? If you're sort of off, always lying to yourself to protect your professional uh, uh, prospects, then you're, you must be lying to yourself, to yourself in other aspects of your, of your life and, in, and of your work as well. Um, you know, my teacher Zelda once said that, you know, the work that we do and the lives we lead aren't two separate things that they, they bleed into one another inevitably. And um, if you're lying to yourself in one aspect of your life, then you're lying to yourself um, in your work. So, you know, that, that's what I would say, I guess, authenticity and assertiveness. And I think we'd have a better culture if more performers, especially would glom onto those things. Well, lastly, number five, what is the most useful advice that you have received and how have you applied that to your life or career? Um, well, that presumes I've ever received any useful advice. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough one. Um, what I would say, myself and one of my teachers, a wonderful man named Jim Calder, uh, we kind of co-coined this term together, but it's the arrogance of generosity. Um, an artist has to have the arrogance to presume that whatever um, he, she, or they has to offer um, is, you know, deserves to be seen by an audience. But they also have to be generous with it, and and it has to cost them something. They have to share all of it um, and leave nothing on stage. Um, you know, Tony Kushner once told me that basically we're, we're, we're essentially people are paying to watch us suffer. Um, you know, and even even comedy is tragedy plus time. So 
you know, yes, we do work for, you know, we, we're arrogant and we're self-centered, we're narcissists, so we do the work to please ourselves and to be seen. But uh, the cost of that, you know, the, the price you must pay for that is to give everything that you have, all of your physical energy, all your mental, emotional strength, um, you know, your temperament, just apply yourself fully and give yourself over to, you know, the work and to the audience. And um, that is, um, and that justifies being paid lots and lots of money. <laughs> <laughs> so arrogance of generosity, I think, would be the like I guess the the main thing. Well, Clifton, this has been a uh, a real pleasure to meet you, but also I appreciate your candidness and openness in talking about uh, what what can be difficult subjects, but but you seem to have uh, have approached them with that uh, both arrogance but also persistence <laughs> <laughs> as well. Thanks, Patrick. I hope you don't get canceled for having me on now. But uh, it's been it's been a pleasure. Thanks for letting me run my mouth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's interesting because I'm I'm so much of a person who who reads all kinds of things, who listens to all kinds of people. You're and a I'm curious like, person. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah. you know I'm that one who goes to Chick Fil A and says I love their chicken. Whatever they think about gay marriage, I don't care. <laughs> I love their chicken. So I mean that's and, and how there dare are people, you? You're a, you're a bad gay, right? And there are people who unfollowed me because of you know that. it's all kinds of stuff. We're just like. Guys, guys, come on, get off social media, stop watching the news and just start talking to people and we'd be in a way, way better place, I think, as a society. Oh, I do, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Talk to each other rather than at each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I think I'm, I'm sure I'm, I, I swear that we agree as Americans on way, way, way more things than we are led to believe. And I think if people understood that, we'd be in a way, way better place right now. Thank you so much for joining Clifton Duncan and myself for this provocative and at times contentious conversation. I may not agree with everything he said, but I'm glad to have a podcast like this where various viewpoints and opinions and experiences can be freely expressed and understood. Don't forget you can give the gift of a Why I'll Never Make It subscription, whether it's to yourself or to someone else. Just go to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe, or just look for the link in the show notes. Well, that does it for me and Season 7. I greatly appreciate you joining me each episode in 2023. Why I'll Never Make It is a production of Win Me Media, and I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast, with Maria Clara Ribeiro as co-producer. Background music used in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions and John Bartman. Be sure to join me for Season 8, which will begin at the end of January, as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.